Well, um, good morning. Uh, my name is Monty. This is Jeff. We're both teaching pastors here for any guests that might be with us here or online. And uh, we want you to know we're taking a, a little bit of a break this morning from Luke. And uh, we're going to speak to, actually Jeff prayed about this earlier, just the world that we're living in, the culture around us, and a, a lot of the mess that uh, is bombarding us from every side. We just felt like we need, to, um, we need to speak to that and invite this community of faith into a conversation that doesn't end today, it starts today, and hopefully continues onward as we all think about um, how do we live in a world like this. Now, now think with me for just a minute what this world is like um, in just every category, health, politics, economics, morality, social engagement, right? Everywhere around that, one word just kind of covers it all. It's chaos, right? Um, I googled the word chaos, looked for images, and this was just one image among many. So that just looks like chaos, doesn't it? There's no real order or uh, design to it. It's just, a, it's kind of a big mess, how are we as Christians supposed to think about living in the midst of that? Living in the midst of chaos. Um, the temptation, I think, is to focus on our circumstances or on issues of the day or tribes and whether we belong or don't. Like, and not that we can't think about any of those, but to focus on those, to make that our primary focus, I think is to become distracted, distracted from what we are really here to be and to do. As we were think, singing those songs this morning, I thought, Christians are a peculiar people. Isn't that a great word? The older I get in Christ, <laughs> the weirder I know I look to a lost world. Yes. I just look weird. But that, that word, um, it, it really just says we're living for something that most of the world cannot understand apart from real instruction from God in his word. So that's where we want to go this morning is get into that. Um, God's word provides a timeless framework for understanding our world, and then it guides us in our engagement through the social terrain that we live in every day. So it shows us how to, how to be engaged as God's people um, we are on assignment, and we are entrusted with the greatest message of all history anywhere in the world, and the, the Bible calls that um, the message of reconciliation. So we're going to talk this morning about the ministry of reconciliation, and that comes out of 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Let me read this to you real quickly. Um, all this is from God. So Paul is looking backward at all that God has done. And he says, Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's given to every single believer. That is, here's what it is. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us the community of faith, the message of reconciliation. Now, here's the key phrase. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
It's our highest aim, our highest calling, our highest purpose. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to the world. So that passage is, and this idea of reconciliation is going to be the umbrella over everything that we talk about this morning. You That's said a, it's reconciled to God. You said reconciled to the world. I just want to I clarify. I did? Thank you for clarifying Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. They're like, I said, no, don't write that down. So. <laughs> thank you, thank you for that, Jeff. Yeah. Um, okay, expectations. We want to just speak to those a little bit before we actually get into the content. First of all, here's a big one. Our calling is uh, not to change a culture. It's to reach a culture. God does the changing. And that's easy to get confused when we're going about doing what we're doing. Uh, This morning, we're going to clarify our biblical identity, our condition, and our calling all under that umbrella of reconciliation. So very important that we keep that in mind. We're going to highlight biblical principles that you and I can apply personally. And so one thing that both of us want to ask you to do is as you're listening, first of all, don't shift into a mode of critique. Um, don't try to figure out what side we're on. Okay, We're on the side of Christ and his word. And lastly, let yourself be the primary, even this morning, the exclusive object of application. Just think about how does this apply to me. Don't think about anybody else. Just think about yourself and how you can apply this. Um, we're not going to address a number of very specific circumstances or issues or things that are going on that you see in the media or hear from your friends or whatever. We're not going to speak directly to those this morning, um, mainly for the sake of time. But if you have any questions about any of that, feel free to follow up with either of us. Send us an email. We'd love to sit down and talk about that. But we're going to stay very general, and hopefully these things we're talking about will help us. So with those expectations in place... Let's take a quick look at Christian worldview. Um, That's the peculiar part, (laughs) maybe, of us and how we operate as a community of faith. And we're going to give you four just quick uh, general expressions of Christian worldview. The first is every person, these are assumptions that we're operating under, every person is made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Every person. And so when God says he makes man and woman in his own image, then that man or woman has dignity. They have value. They have worth. That has nothing to do with what they do or how they look or any of those other attributes. It's simply because they, in their existence, display something about who God is and what he's like. So that's our, that's our first assumption that we're making as we get into this conversation. Yeah, and a Christian worldview is so important because it gives us this lens that we look at everybody and everything through as a Christ follower. And so Monty just gave you the good news. My job is to give you the bad news because the next thing the scriptures tell us is that Genesis 3 comes and Adam and Eve sin and the image of God has been marred or defaced or broken but in every person since then. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, 18 and 19. He says, Therefore, as one trespasses, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The blood of Adam is full of sin, and it has infected all of us. Uh, when Eve bit that apple, you and I have felt the sting of that, and everyone else has ever since. And so it's this picture of a beautiful uh, glass lake, just the smoothness of the water, and you throw a big boulder in it, and the ripple effect continues for all of eternity to every person who was born. So good news, bad news. Yeah. Um, so, and then kind of building on that. So uh, if every person bears God's image, but that image has been marred or defaced, that has an effect vertically and horizontally. This, this shows up in Genesis 4. Vertically, we're, um, our relationship with God is naturally broken. We are naturally separated from God. But also then there are human broken broken places where it, we're at odds with each other first example is Cain and Abel like right out of the shoots you've got a brother killing a brother and then it just gets worse after that so as we're thinking about a Christian worldview we don't come at it going you know we're just a world of great people good-hearted people who generally just really love each other no we're saying we're a world full of sinful people who are at odds with God and at odds with each other. That's the starting place. And then God is doing a work in the midst of that. And that's what we're going to get on this morning. Yeah, it should not amaze us that once sin hits the world in Genesis 3, one chapter over in Genesis 4, the implications of that, of a brother killing a brother, take place. So here's the last phase of this Christian worldview. It is our hope. Our only hope is found in Christ, the author, the perfecter of biblical reconciliation. Let me read Romans 5, 18 and 19 again, but let me read it in full because I took a little bit out. Here's what it says in full. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man, Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So here's the implication. Vertical separation from God equals hostility. Hostility with God vertically equals hostility with people horizontally but once a person knows Christ and reconciliation vertically takes place then horizontally horizontally that is a first place of application and implication it, you know people have said if it weren't for God it weren't for people we'd be okay right that's sometimes true but God's saying no for the Christ follower here's what's crucial for us when you come to me that thing needs to be shown horizontally with each other. And I'll just say this. It has been a huge blind spot for the church, not just in terms of uh, racial stuff, but that's what we've struggled with the most is loving others who aren't lovable sometimes because we're not lovable either, or that's what you struggle with. So that's been the message of the church, but the church uh, needs some incredible application, especially in these days. So, all right. 
So with that uh, in place, here we go. Um, we're going to look at two key passages, both, both of which speak to reconciliation. The first one is going to talk about reconciliation that has been achieved. And then secondly, we're going to talk about what it, looks for, what it looks like for reconciliation to be applied in these ways that we've already been addressing. So if you, want, if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. We're going to move quickly through this, but some great opportunities for application. So this passage actually begins with the bad news that Jeff just gave us a moment ago. So start looking with me in verse 11, and this is the hopeless condition of separation. And this is universal. This isn't particular to anybody. This is everybody. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienation from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So that's where Paul begins as he's addressing a group of people that he calls Gentiles. And it specifically refers to them as the uncircumcision. That was actually a term that was given them by the Jews. See, the Jews had circumcision as a practice which reflected the covenant that God made with Abraham, set those people apart um, for his purposes. Gentiles were not circumcised. So Jews would refer to them that way, but that's a derogatory term. That's a term of contempt. You could actually call it a racial slur. That was their way of saying, you're beneath us. We're better than you. So that's, that's where uh, Paul starts, is with these two people who actually represent the only two specific races referred to in the Bible. Did you know that? Jews and Gentiles. All of the other categories, as we'll see in just a minute, are categories that we created to help us just kind of understand, like, where are you from? What language do you speak? Uh, What group are you a part of? But those are just sort of superficial. There's two categories here, Jews and Gentiles, who are instrumental to God's plan of reconciliation. There's two other categories that we need to keep in mind as we get into this conversation, and that is believers and unbelievers. So the Bible gives us four big categories, Jew and Gentile, you're in one of those two categories, and believer and unbeliever, you're in one of those as well. When we get confused about which category we're in, we get really confused about how to live and what we're here for. Now, when we get to Revelation, so if we get to the end of the book, the end of the story, we find that there are four references to people groups. These are the superficial ones that God is definitely working in. But but listen to this. In Revelation 5-9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people, and nation. 
Those four categories are repeated again in Revelation 13, 7 and Revelation 14, 6. Now, here's what's important about those categories. They in no way ascribe any amount of value to anyone beyond being made in the image of God. It's just, where are you from? What language do you speak? It's referring to ethnicity, some of those kinds of things. But it's not saying that one is, is somehow better or worse than another. It's just saying, here's, here's the way we all group people, and God is going to reach every one of them. Every one of them will have an opportunity to know of God and respond to Him. That's the only reason those categories are given. The world organizes itself around power. So it associates where you're from and who you know and what group you're with, with power. This peculiar people called the Christ followers, community of faith, we organize ourselves around Christ. We are in, but not of the world. We don't make alliances with the world. We're called to reach them. So, so important. So into that hopeless condition, God establishes unity where there was once division. Now, you got to remember, early church, Christ has died, he was buried, he's risen again, he has his apostles who are establishing the church. And within that church, there are both of those groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And prior to that time, they are completely opposed to one another. And one believes that it is superior to the other, Jews. They, they totally missed, and if they had read their Old Testament, they would have gotten this, that God set them apart, not because they were more important or more special than anybody else, but it was to reach the rest of the world. He selected a small group to reach the big group. That's all it was. That was the distinction that was being made. So these two people now are thrust into the church. And uh, they're supposed to live differently. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul is using imagery here that all of them would have been familiar with, but it's actually imagery from the Jerusalem temple. So if you take a look at that here on the screen, um, you'll see how it's laid out. And Paul is referencing this. The highest part there, that's the Holy of Holies. That's where only one could enter, the high priest, one time a year, basically to offer sacrifices which would atone for all the sins of Israel. As you make your way further and further away from that, you, you get further away relationally from God in a physical sense. So that other court there that is directly out from that, that higher spot, that's the court of women. 
So that would have been the next tier of people. Notice that they, there's a dividing wall in between that court and the Holy of Holies. Outside of that, all the way around the outside of the temple, notice there's a wall all the way around. Guess what court that is? The court of the Gentiles. They are outside the wall. They are disconnected from Israel and certainly from the Holy of Holies where there is access to God. Paul is saying here, when Jesus came, when he died for sin and rose again, all of those walls were torn down. Everyone, the high priest, women, and the Gentiles, all had equal access to the Father. I mean, look at the language there. Those who are far off have been brought near. He's speaking specifically to the Gentiles there. Christ has made Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He's taken out even those two important categories for historical purposes and said, you guys are the same. You both have the same problems, sin, and you have the same answer, Jesus. One new man in place of the two. Both reconciled to God in one body through the cross. So that's how God addresses the problem, the hopeless condition that all of humanity was in prior to his coming. Now the objective unity, so he has made them one, but a whole lot of the time they don't act like it. They still act like two separate groups of people, one superior to the other. So basically what Paul's trying to say is there is an objective reality about you. You're one. You're unified. There is no more Jew and Gentile. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. Those are the two categories that really matter now. So which one are you? If you're a believer, then you are one with every other person who has placed their trust in Christ. Look at verse 17. And he came, that is Jesus, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Both needed that message. For through him we, have both, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to the Gentiles here. But you are fellow citizens and saints with the members of the household of God. Unbelievable. Built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the message of reconciliation, this work that God has done, they didn't do it, God did it. That work is a message of peace where previously there was hostility. And notice that he's not just addressing the vertical. He is addressing the horizontal. They both go together. He says there are no more strangers and aliens, equal access to the Father, fellow citizens and members of the household of God. They're built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
So you, you basically see God establishing a relational foundation where God can dwell among his people and reach those who aren't yet in the household of God, who aren't a part of the community of faith. Now, peace or reconciliation doesn't have to be achieved. So that's not what we're about. If this is true, if there really has been given peace or reconciliation vertically and horizontally by Christ, then we just need to apply it. So that's where this, that's important. This has to come first. We have to understand the concept and the reality of reconciliation. Then we have to say, okay, if all this is true, we have to apply it somehow. That's what Jeff's going to talk about out of James. It, it, and that's the step that we are all going to need to make going forward. How do we as a community of faith apply the reality of reconciliation to all that we do? So... Obviously, Monty just laid out the foundation, the theological foundation of reconciliation. And uh, as Howard Hendricks used to say, our problem as Christians is we are lacking vitamin A, which stands for application. And so to do that, we're going to look at James chapter 2, the sin of partiality. It's a familiar text. It's the issue of partiality or favoritism or prejudice or snubbing or mistreatment of others. Because somehow they are different than us because of their skin color or ethnicity or their culture or socially or economically or intellectually or athletically or geographically. Think north-south. <laughs> it's, it's not a social or cultural issue, though. The sin of partiality is a deep and rich Blood of Jesus gospel issue. And that's what we've got to see. Monty, again, just, I'm appealing back to his words about Ephesians. Because that's where we see it's a gospel issue. So the question for us is not if we struggle with the sin of partiality, but in which way? <laughs> because we struggle in all things. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, addresses this very real issue that has crept into the church only 15 years after Christ's resurrection. And in that, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he gives us a forceful command, a beautiful picture of the gospel, verses 5 through 7. And he makes this argument. Good doctrine about mankind should lead to good living with mankind. So let me just read our text. And again, we don't have long. Make it short so we won't do a full exegesis of this text. But let me just read. It's pretty simple. To know, but hard to apply. My brothers, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing... And say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? 
but you have discovered the poor man. You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the only ones who, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality or favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be, to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So many commentators say that James speaks to this because he saw it happen in the church with his own eyes. Makes sense, doesn't it? He's addressing issues of his day of partiality or favoritism, just like we are addressing issues of partiality or favoritism. That word favoritism or partiality really means to perceive the face of someone. To perceive the face of someone. I grew up in a home where everything that my mom valued was about the external. How you dressed, what brand you wore, how her house looked or didn't look. And she would make judgments simply from the external. James is saying here this, this definition to perceive the face of someone is to make judgments and distinctions based on external considerations. It is being controlled by things of the world, the glitz, the resume, the exterior, meaningless things, human connections. And Christ, here's what he's done for us. He set us free from making judgments of others based on exterior things. In another way, we could say it says, my brothers and sisters who are chasing after Christ do not perceive the face of others or literally do not treat people with bias and special treatment based on their externals. Makes sense, doesn't it? But if you're listening to me, hopefully what you're thinking is, God, I do that. That I have instinctual biases that I have to continually fight with great intentionality. I even do that with my own wife. If I'm going to struggle with her of, of somehow thinking I'm one up and she's one down, then certainly I'm going to struggle with those that I don't know. Paul puts it this way, speaking of the Jew and Gentile, Romans 2, 11, For God shows not partiality. Aren't you and I thankful he shows not partiality? Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do, do no injustice in court. You should not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. If you go back today, maybe a great couple passages we'll give you to read. One would be Acts 10. Peter, as Monty spoke of, was a Jew, 
and he was showing partiality against the Gentiles. There's your two races, because he did not think the Jews were good enough to have Jesus as their Savior without obeying all the Old Testament laws. Here's what's amazing in that chapter. God came after Peter in a dream. Peter, stop it. You are showing partiality. And because of the Lord Jesus himself, there is no more partiality. Pretty powerful. So in James, verses 2 through 3, James gives this illustration of something he observed in the church. The rich man getting preferential treatment or favoritism over the poor. And so we say to ourselves, we're reminded at the foot of the cross, there's a level playing field from a spiritual vantage point. We're all poor without Christ, and we're all rich with Christ. As Christ followers, those of us who have shown so much grace, shown, been shown so much grace, we really should be the very last people on the face of the earth to show partiality. Then I love the argument at the end. Good doctrine about mankind should lead to good living with mankind. It's a powerful statement. He uses uh, the great commandment. Does he not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? There's the vertical. And then an implication of that is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I think these folks that James is writing to I think they care a lot. I think they're in church. They know Christ. They care a lot about the scriptures and about God, but they have blind spots, and they don't see how they are showing partiality and favoritism. And I think the truth is the same of us, all of us. Here's some application for us. It has been said that the church doesn't teach about the sin of partiality. Well, it does. We just don't recognize it. When, when in John 13, when Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I love you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What, what is Jesus really saying? He's speaking to the sin of partiality. Galatians 3, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in who? Christ. 1 Timothy 5, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without what? Partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Speaking directly, Monty mentioned Revelation 7, 9. What a beautiful passage in terms of all ethnicity, all languages, all nations are going to know Christ. Matter of fact, here's an application for us. Uh, Monty was speaking out of Ephesians 2, right? So Ephesians 1 through 3 is the theological foundation for who we are in Christ and how the wall's been broken down vertically between us and God. And then Paul writes Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 as the application. Here's what it means. And to sum up, chapters 4, 5, and 6, you look at 432. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Folks, that is straight up gospel. And churches that don't teach this are not gospel churches. 
they're cultural churches. Cultural Christianity has not been a great thing for our country. Do you understand that? Good stuff. Monty, you wrap up. I'll wrap up and we'll be ready to roll. I'll wrap up and then you wrap up? Okay, that sounds good. It's the double wrap up. Um, So we've said a lot and there's a lot that could be still said about this topic. And um, as we thought about how to wrap up, I, I think what we tried to do is just think more personally. So just like as one of your pastors... Um, I want you to know that from the beginning of this church, we had a nice identity statement. I don't know how many of you know it, but it is that we are a diverse gathering of broken yet hopeful people who believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you see how that statement captures everything that we've talked about this morning? So the question is, do you really believe that about you? If you do, then what you do is you go, okay, I'm a part of a community of faith. We are one. We're in this together. We're like family. And we have been assigned by God to invite the rest of the world into that family. And if I realize that I'm broken but hopeful, here's what I know about the world. They're broken and hopeless. So it totally changes my perspective, my attitude, my posture as I approach them. I'm not aligning with the world in any way. I can't. But I can invite them into this amazing place of grace and mercy. And we can really go somewhere. That's attractive to the world. And if we are, if there's infighting, my goodness. The, the world looks at that and goes, that's a joke. You're no different than we are. What did, John, uh, what did Jesus pray in John 17? That we would be one just like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let that sink in. That's oneness that's just really hard to even comprehend. But that's what we're called to. Unity is the strategy. Not correction, not superiority, not conflict. It's our unity. And the better we do that, when we go to our neighbor, our coworker, our friend, we get somewhere. Those are great words. Um, for me, I, I, I just want to, I want to challenge us, first of all, to really Take a minute to consider, like we, our history in this country is not great. Most histories in countries are not great. But we live in America, so I want to speak to America. It's demonic. Slavery was demonic. I have a black daughter. It makes me physically nauseated when I think about her having to go through what slaves went through. I can't go there very long. I literally start to get physically sick. That doesn't mean I understand everything, but we have to acknowledge that. Secondly, I grew up in a racially charged, sin of partiality environment. I, I, my friends, when integration took place in third grade, my friends became uh, mostly African-American 
young men. We were all boys at that time. And uh, Nathan Cox and Shelton Richardson, I can name them all because I was the, the white guy who, uh, who was athletic and big and could hang, you know, and they loved me, I loved them, and I couldn't bring them to my house. I grew up where the word, the N-word, was used regularly. I adopted an African-American girl. My mom thought oh, we were crazy until she held her in her arms as a newborn. The last dying breath that my mom, words that my mom gave as she lay on her deathbed would, would you tell them at my funeral that God changed my heart toward black people through that girl? She said, because I don't have much good to tell. She was true. It was right. So I did. On the other side of that, I am amazed that we, it's by far ten times we have been criticized by African Americans for adopting a black child. So it goes both ways. The sin of partiality goes both ways. Now look, we've been loved incredibly too by white and black people majority by far so let that be clear but the world won't tell you the sin of partiality goes both ways but the scriptures will tell you that i want to end with this this passage stand with me if you would as we read this it is a great word to us as we walk out in this chaos we need clarity and conviction in the midst of chaos Peter writes in 2 Peter, verse 3 through 10. Close your eyes and listen intently as I read. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection." And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That is a great word for us. Read and meditate and chew upon that. And uh, let us at Fellowship Bible Church, corporately and individually, be a part of clarity, conviction, 
in the midst of the chaos. God has called us to do that, and God has equipped us through the knowledge of him in this word to do just that. Money, why don't you pray for us? Yeah, let me just let me say this right before I pray. Um, so that chaos that where we started, right? We're going to walk right back out into it here in just a minute. And we still got to answer the question, how are we going to think about it and how are we going to respond to it? So we want to ask you, as your pastors, to prayerfully ask God, where is it in you that there needs to be some change? Man, all the grace in the world, man. We need to change. So let's do that as a church, and let's trust him to do an amazing work. That's your so what as we leave today. Just ask the Lord, how can I apply this message of reconciliation to my own life and to the lives of the people that are around me? Okay, let me pray for us and we'll be done. Lord, we are so grateful. We say it over and over and over again, but thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, would you make us people that are full of gratitude, full of joy, and uh, full of zeal for taking this good news everywhere we go. And Lord, where we are in spiritual relationship, where we are part of the body of Christ, Lord, help us to love each other well. And where we encounter the world, help us to show the love of Christ, regardless of who it is that we're with regardless of how different we may be. Lord, help us to welcome anyone and everyone just like Jesus did. We ask for your help, Holy Spirit. We thank you that you give it. Pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.